This episode is sponsored by The Principal Center. The Principal Center is a provider of professional development for high-performance instructional leadership. Go to the website principalcenter.com. On this website, you can find a lot of resources and services on leadership. And now, let's go to today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. Today we will listen to an interview that I have conducted with Philip Hallinger. Um, I hope you enjoy the show today. Yeah, so today I'm on Skype here in the Faroe Islands, and with me at the other end is uh, uh, Philip Harlinger. He is a professor at Shualong Korn University in Bangkok in Thailand. And uh, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Uh, six hours time, six time zones away, but yeah. pleasure to be here. <laughs> Uh, Philip, maybe you can first tell us a little bit about your professional background. Okay, let, let me, maybe I can first say that uh, what the podcast is going to be about is about what we call leadership for learning or instructional leadership. My own background, I started out 50 years ago, almost 45 years ago, uh, as a teacher and school administrator in the United States, uh, later on uh, w- taught and worked as administrator in primary and secondary schools in several different parts of the U.S., went on to get my master degree and my, ba- and my doctoral degree at Stanford University in educational administration, uh, went on to work as a uh, director of a school leadership center in New York. Uh, director of a leadership center and professor at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee in the U.S. And then in around 1990, I had a Fulbright Fellowship to Chiang Mai University in Thailand, which ended up becoming a long project that lasted 10 years. And for 10 years, I was essentially half-time in Thailand and half-time at uh, uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, and during those years, I worked in virtually all of the countries in East and Southeast Asia, from Korea and China down to Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Vietnam, and so forth, uh, doing uh, research and also doing training with principals because when I went to uh, Asia, East Asia, in the 1990s, there actually was very little in the way of leadership development or leadership training for school leaders, however you define them. Uh, nowadays, we don't only refer to school leaders as principal, the principal, but as department heads and teacher leaders as well. But even, even if you just only talked about principals back in the 1990s in, uh, in East Asia, there was very little in the way of training and development uh, on offer for them. And I used to 
go back to the U.S. and they say, well, what are you doing over there in Asia? I say, well, think of me like Johnny Appleseed. Hmm. Johnny Appleseed was a character in the folk wisdom of the United States, folk tales of the United States, who would go from uh, neighborhood to neighborhood and state to state, dropping apple seeds and the apple trees would grow. And that's what I essentially was doing for that decade in the 1990s in East Asia was uh, dropping the seeds for uh, leadership development for people working in schools. And those seeds ended up turning into what we call principal centers or leadership centers that opened uh, in China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, and so forth, throughout, really throughout the region. Hmm. Uh, in 2000, I came full-time, I left Vanderbilt and came full-time to Thailand and have uh, worked in Thailand, Hong Kong, China over the last 15 years, uh, continuing that work as a, prof- as a professor and as a dean uh, and as a trainer of principals hmm. and researcher. So you have a good professional background with a lot of varieties. Uh, yeah, let me then ask you, what is cur- currently your main research interest? My main research interest right now, I guess I have a couple, uh, and they're interrelated. Um, back in, let me, let me go back to the early 1980s, because this is sort of the genesis or the seeds of my research when I was at Stanford, um, I had been a teacher back in the 1970s and a school administrator in different schools. And uh, when I went to Stanford, I remember writing my, uh, you had to write a, why do you want to study for a master degree? Uh, What do you hope to learn and so forth? And uh, I wrote my statement of purpose for my master degree back in about 1977, 78, talking about the fact that I I had had experience in different schools and had become, just from my observations as a practitioner, as a teacher and administrator, that uh, if you look from school to school, you could see in some ways the effectiveness, whether you talked about the discipline or talked about the commitment of uh, students' discipline or the commitment of teachers or the learning of students. I, I could see that in some way, there were things about the school that the administrators, the principal in particular, uh, could seem to influence and to make the school work better as a whole. And that's what I wrote about I wanted to study. So when I got to Stanford in the, early ni- in the late 1970s, I remember I was searching around for a dissertation topic, and I came across an article written by Ronald Edmonds, E-D-M-O-N-D-S, who later became known as the father of the effective schools movement. And uh, Ron Edmonds uh, essentially was doing research in New York City. And what he found in New York City was schools located in the same neighborhood, serving the same kinds of kids, very what we call now challenging schools, yeah. <laughs> schools in challenging circumstances is a polite way to put it. But uh, he'd find schools located in exactly the same neighborhood, w- working with the same kinds of students. And in one school, the students were failing, failing in the sense of not, not succeeding, put it mm. that way. 
And in the other school, the students were were succeeding well beyond okay. what the school students in the first school had been doing. And this led to what later became known as the effective schools research and effective schools movement, trying to understand what's going on in those schools where the students are succeeding when compared with the schools where they're not. And it turned out that my previous uh, hunch was correct, that it had something to do, not the only thing, but one of the fa- key factors that he identified was about the principal. Yeah. And that, and that the, in those schools that were more successful, the principals were actually leading learning and what he called instructional leadership. And that is what I ended up doing my dissertation and a lot of my research over the last 30-something years has been on instructional leadership. And that continues to be one of my interests today. Hmm. And uh, so one of the research projects I'm working on, and now this intersects with the second research interest that I have, which is about what I would call context and culture. That is that um, when I moved to Asia, or when I started working in Asia, I saw that the schools in Asia presented very different contexts, context and culture uh, within which principles worked. So you could talk about instructional leadership. But in fact, in those days, in the 1990s, uh, no one in Asia had ever heard of instructional leadership. And in fact, the role of principals was very much more management uh, than uh, what we would call today leadership or instructional leadership. And so today, the research that I'm doing is we have a project in seven countries here in Asia uh, looking at trying to understand how the context of the country influences the role of the principal and how they enact their role as a leader and more specifically as an instructional leader. And as we look at context, just to give you an example to fill it out a bit, we look at, um, for example, in Vietnam, uh, principals have two bosses. One boss is in the line of the Ministry of Education, and a second boss is in the line of the Communist Party. Hmm. So, uh, uh, and the uh, they have to attend to both of those bosses okay. <laughs> in a in a constant way. So, they, and a third factor that they that we notice in Vietnam is what you can call what they call Confucian culture. Hmm. So Chinese Confucian culture, this is the every country has its culture, and we notice how the culture of Vietnam also shapes the way that principals enact their leadership role uh, and instructional leadership role. So taking Vietnam, the context really, three aspects of that national context jump out at us. One, the political. Two, the bureaucratic, or what you can call the education system, and the third being the socio-cultural uh, uh, context, socio-cultural context of the country. And and I believe every country, in you know, you can look at those factors as comprising the context and analyze how they shape the role of the principal. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yes, and then we will dig deeper into the subject of instructional leadership. Where, where kind of did you start off your research in this area? 
Well, the, uh, this goes back to the early my doctoral dissertation, uh, which was finished in 1983. I, I should go back to, uh, there were two genesises or two origins of my interest, um, aside from what I mentioned before when I went to Stanford, uh, from the, my interest from my practical experience as a teacher and a school administrator. But my, one of my dissertation advisors, Ed Bridges, he had written an article in 1967, that was 15 years earlier, uh, in which he talked about instructional leadership as something that in the United States, and I emphasize in the United States, uh, principles were being, uh, even back in the 1960s, they were told you should be instructional leaders. But what Bridges pointed out in his article is that the job of the principal seemed to be so full of managerial responsibilities that who had who had time to do instructional leadership and in fact what did it even mean? Hmm. So um, uh, so that goes back to the '60s and then in the as I said before in the late 1970s, Ron Edmonds with the Effective Schools movement, he said. In these effective schools, these schools that are more effective for kids learning under very challenging conditions, the principals act more as instructional leaders than in the schools where the students are not succeeding. That was one of the seven factors that he identified. So my dissertation uh, kind of took those two ideas, Bridges, who said, Nobody's defined instructional leadership. We, we say principals should do it, but they don't know what they should do. Hmm. And then Edmonds comes out and says, well, one of the factors that seems to uh, distinguish the less effective from the more effective schools, specifically for kids learning in challenging circumstances, is instructional leadership. But he didn't really define it all that clearly. So my doctoral dissertation at Stanford was uh, to actually define that role of instructional leadership. And I developed an instrument uh, called the Principal Instructional Management Rating Scale, which went along with the framework that I developed hmm. uh, with, in collaboration with a colleague named Joe Murphy. And uh, that framework and the instrument have since, um, quite amazingly, uh, they still very relevant today. In fact, the instrument has been used in around 375 studies okay. all over the world. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, just before I came on to this podcast, I was editing a paper uh, in which the, uh, a doctoral student in Chile huh. in South America had used the instrument in his dissertation uh, to validate a Spanish version for use in Chile. And then we wrote a paper together. And in the paper, in addition to reporting about the results of validating the, the Spanish version of the instrument in Chile, we compared his results in Chile with results from, I believe it was Turkey and China and uh, four or five other, and I think Malaysia, five different countries so essentially what we were doing was we developed pro instructional leadership profiles of principals hmm. from five 
around five different countries and compared what which of the aspects of instructional leadership, for example, the, the instrument measures three dimensions of instructional leadership, the, the ways in which the principal defines a mission for the school is one. A second is what we call managing the ins, instructional program. Yeah. That has to do with supervision and evaluation of instruction, monitoring student learning, and coordinating curriculum. A third dimension is promoting a positive school learning climate. So the instrument measures those three dimensions, and we can look across these different countries and see from country to country which of, you know, how does the emphasis that principals give to these dimensions vary hmm. by country. Okay. So that was, a, that was a paper that I was just working on, but um, uh, that was the, uh, that goes back to my dissertation back in 1983 where I developed the framework, developed the instrument, and the framework actually has been used all over the world in the years since as a framework also uh, for developing training for principals. Huh. So when people say, well, what what do principals need to know about instructional leadership? Well, the, the framework and the instrument both give a pretty clear picture of the dimensions of that role, three of which I just mentioned a, a, few min, a minute or so ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and how did you come up with these three ingredients of defining a mission and managing the instructional program and promoting a positive school climate? Uh, uh, back at the beginning, it was a combination of uh, a literature review huh. and uh, interviews with school leaders. Okay, and and so it was uh, very much looking back, looking at the literature on school uh, school leadership uh, uh, from that era, and then trying to pull out from the research that had been done what what seemed to be the uh, key dimensions. And then once I developed a set of dimensions and, and job functions, I uh, filtered those through the experience of uh, other school leaders. Okay. So, so if, if a school leader wants to promote his instructional leadership, is it then an order that he must firstly work with the mission and then he will go on to the instructional program and then promote a school, positive school climate, or is it kind of all intertwined with each other? It, I would say it's more intertwined, and you need to do a more thoughtful analysis of the context. So let me give you an example. Um, you go into a school that's got... Um, I was in a school not so long ago in... Uh, and uh, the school was... Uh, there was a lot of disorder okay. in the school. Yeah. Uh, you walked around the school. There were kids running here, running there, outside the classrooms and so forth. And um, the, uh, uh, in a school like that, you're going to have to actually – you work on things simultaneously, but you're, I've got, you have to get the, the school climate under control first. Okay. So – one of the other factors, for example, that Ron Edmonds talked about was safe, orderly environment. So you can have a school that's got a safe, orderly environment, but 
where the kids are not learning well. Yeah. But but if the school doesn't have a safe orderly environment, it's going to be pretty tough to get them focused on learning. Hmm. So, you know, so in that sense, there is some sequence. Yeah. Um, but uh, the same thing in a classroom yeah. with an individual teacher. You know, a teacher may complain, oh, my kids aren't motivated. You know, uh, my kids, they don't behave. Well, when kids don't behave in class, it can be a combination of, of factors. And so you may need to work on getting order in the classroom. But simultaneous with uh, getting order in the classroom, you also need to create more interest among the kids by making the, the instruction and the curriculum more interesting to them. And if you can do that, you'll engage them and then they will be motivated to learn and their behavior will improve. Mm. So it, it works, it works, I think, both the, the same way at the school. It's not one or the other. It's both. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and so, uh, you know, a professor of mine at Stanford way back when uh, named uh, Nate Gage, he wrote, uh, G-A-G-E, he wrote a book called The Art of the science, uh, I don't remember whether it was the art of the science of teaching or the science of the art of teaching, to okay. be honest, but, but you get the idea, yeah. you know, that, and I think it's the same thing with administration. Hmm. What we can do for principals and for leaders, and this goes across all of the settings that you deal with, if it's early childhood, social services, leaders in all of these different settings, you can identify principles that's principles as in uh, uh, P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E-S, not the principle of a school, but you can identify principles of leadership that work, yeah. and those principles can be used to guide our practice. Hmm. But, but we can't give you a menuized, personalized learning, student-centered learning. And um, when I went in, Initially to the school, what I found was that every classroom was set up in, with the tables and chairs in rows, not, not in kind of a for team or cooperative based learning. But so it actually and, and the class size was limited to 30. Yeah. But they might as well have had 300 in the class when you actually looked at the way the teachers taught. Okay. <laughs> so so so. Uh, so what, what did I do? What I also found was the teachers at a particular subject were all teach, even though if they were teaching the same subject for the same level of students, they were teaching completely different curricula. Hmm. Uh, so what I, uh, one of the initial decisions that I made as a leader was to tell the teachers, you're going to have to come up with common curriculum. Hmm. Uh, and that's not a choice that you have. Yeah. You're going to have to develop common curriculum. You're going to have to develop common assessments. And um, so in concert with that, I, I did a lot of work with them on curriculum development. I myself, as a uh, principal, did training and brought people in from the outside to do training with the teachers, for example, on different instructional methods, hmm. uh, how to use – so, for example – the teachers had these LCD projectors and computer workstations, but when you went into a classroom, they were using the 
they were all using PowerPoint, but they might as well have been using overhead projectors because they didn't use any video ah. when they were teaching. There was no uh, multimedia, uh, no access to the Internet or anything. It, 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 they were simply using this expensive equipment, just like a traditional overhead projector. So we did training with them on how to, how to embed video and multimedia to, make, to engage the students and uh, challenge their thinking. Uh, and we, um, we taught them how to do performance-based assessments using rubrics. Okay. We did we did training on problem based learning. So, our, so this you asked me. So, how did you manage? What does it mean to manage curriculum and instruction, or manage the instructional program? These are some examples uh, of what is involved with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is it also involved to do observation of the teachers? Uh, it, it can be. It can be, but uh, any principal will tell you that their own time to do that is quite limited. Yeah. Um, there was, there was a, there's a fantastic article which your listeners can look up. There were two of them, actually, uh, written by a, a principal in Boston, Massachusetts, named Kim Marshall, okay. K-I-M, Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Yeah. And he wrote two articles published, I believe, in the journal Educational Leadership, where he talked about um, the hyperactive principal. Yeah. This is the principal running around the school. Um, it, it, this is kind of about time management. Hmm. Uh, the principal running around the school trying to do everything and never, ever being able to get into classrooms. Yeah. And he talked about classrooms as having a force field around them yeah. that principals found it difficult to penetrate. And principals find it difficult to penetrate that force field for a couple of reasons. One, they often lack confidence. They wonder, what can I tell this teacher? Many principals uh, are not selected because of their own expertise in teaching. Hmm. Um, in many countries, I can tell you for a fact, <laughs> in the country I live in, Thailand, principals are not selected for their expertise in teaching. In fact, their expertise in teaching is not even considered hmm. when they're selected as principals. Therefore, and I know going back many years in the United States, not today, it's changed. Yeah. But 30 years ago, 30 years ago, the most common criteria for selection of principals were if they were male and if they were a physical education teacher. Yeah. <laughs> so physical education teacher is going to go in and, and coach a teacher who's teaching math? Hmm. Well, I don't think so. They're going to have a tough time at that. Yeah. So now this leads to the other one of the other trends today, which is when we talk about leadership for learning or instructional leadership, it cannot only be the principal. Oh. Principals don't have the time to do it all themselves. Gene uh, uh, Hall, one of the famous writers on uh, leading change in schools, he said principals can't do it alone. Hmm. And I think that's very accurate. And so one of the trends today, we hear about shared leadership, we hear about distributed leadership, uh, all of these, all of these trends in the leadership literature, are about 
the ways that principals organize their teams, the way principals take advantage of the expertise of others in the school to enact that leadership role. So the role is not a role that one person can can or should try to do because they'll burn out. Uh, It's a role that has to be uh, enacted by a team. Yeah. Time is running very quickly, and this is very interesting. (laughs) But let me uh, ask you quickly about how to promote a positive school climate. Is this a school climate both for the students and for the teachers, or is it more kind of the professional discourse? It's both. It's both. I, I think it's both. I'll give you three three ways. One, uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see hmm. in the world around you. And so uh, one of the I, so I think if a principal wants to promote a positive learning climate, they need to be the change. So when I was a principal, I still taught, also a learner. I tried to model the teachers through by teaching some myself and by running some of the professional development myself. Uh, A second is what they call MBWA, management by walking around. Mm. And uh, management by walking around is, I'll give you an example. When I was a dean, many of my students were coming to school at night. Well, they were supposed to start class at 6 o'clock. So around 5 o'clock, 5.15, I would start walking around that section of the, of, the, of the college where the classrooms were. And as the students came in, I talked to the students. As the faculty members came in, I talked to the faculty. What am I talking about? Now, this MBWA, one, one leader can be walking around and just walking around. Another leader, in my case, as I walk around, I am trying to communicate, reinforce our vision, reinforce our goals, get, get information from the students about what they need, what they're not getting, what they're like, find out from the instructors what's working, what's not working, um, uh, and so forth. So it's a lot of live information. And that was a routine that I did every day. Hmm. Now, I left that college about eight years ago, and last year I got an email from a part-time faculty member who used to work with us, and he said he sent me an email. And he said, you know, someone mentioned I was over at the college today. I still teach there one course per term in the evening, and I want to tell you, somebody mentioned your name, made me think about you, and I wanted to write and tell you that in the eight years since you left, I never met any of the deans, and there have been five of them, Hmm. I've never met any of the deans who came after you. But I saw you all the time. And I got to tell you what a difference it made to me as a faculty member. Hmm. So be the change you want to see. Um, uh, Use it as the MBWA, management by walking around. Use it as an opportunity to reinforce the goals that you've got. Uh, we have a phrase we say, catch people doing the right thing. Hmm. So that's, this is one of the ways that you change the climate of the school. Instead of managing through fear and, and catching people when they're doing the wrong thing, you catch them when they do the right thing and reinforce it. Praise them. Yeah. Uh, tell them you know, what it means to you. So these are some of the ways that you can uh, uh, 
you know, practical way, I think practical ways mm-hmm. that you create uh, a uh, positive learning climate. The expectations that you hold and that you convey is one of the key tools of any leader. Yeah. Okay, let me then move on to the last question. Which area in instructional leadership do you think is in need of more research? I guess... I think... uh, Depends where you're living. Okay. (laughs) Depends on your country. (laughs) Because I think context context is huge. Hmm. And and, and so... uh, in one country, you know, one country has many countries have no tradition of instructional leadership at all. Yeah. Um, many countries have no tradition of the principal as a leader, only as a manager. Yeah. So, so I think it varies from country to country. But I will answer your question. I think one of the really interesting ones is I referred to a few minutes ago, and it concerns how, if we say that the principal can't do the job alone. And the principal needs to enact that role as a team, not as an individual. How does the principal, who still has to be the one responsible for it, because nobody but the principal can have the, uh, the perspective of, of the whole. Yeah. And uh, so, it ha- so this is why I say the principal still needs to be instructional leader, even if they, have, even if they enact that role as a team, hmm. they have to be the one to initiate it, to organize, to support. So this, I think, how principals do that, how they engage their vice principals, how they engage their subject leaders, how they engage grade level leaders, how they engage teachers with particular expertise to share um, uh, in informal leadership roles, how they pull this off how they inspire, how they organize, and how they support to make that work, I think is a really interesting area for research. Okay. Thank you very much, Philip. This has been very interesting. If, if my listeners want to find more information about you and your research, where can they go? They can find my website, which is www.philiphallinger.com. That's Philip with one L. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can also download a lot. They can search for me on a website called ResearchGate. Okay. So I think a lot of the faculty members would uh, be familiar with ResearchGate, and I have a web page within ResearchGate. But my own website has a lot of information, including articles that can be downloaded. Thank you for listening to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings, and Social Care Settings. I hope you have enjoyed the interview and that you have gained some new insights into leadership. I hope that you will listen to the other podcasts in this series. A new podcast is being published on the first of every month. 
You're also welcome to join us on Facebook. There's a group called Research and Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. If you just type in the name of the podcast in the search field in Facebook, you will find the group. Once again, thanks for listening and bye-bye.